0: Hi, you're listening to Elevate, the podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in.
1: As adults, we lose that acceptance and that excitement around feedback, which is so necessary. So we're missing something here. Your work can not outgrow you, who you are. It can not outgrow your own level of awareness and your mindset, your emotional intelligence. You have to work on that. Our students are digital citizens. Instead of us trying to tell them what their world is, we should guide them in navigating that world in a healthy way.
0: Welcome to the Elevate Podcast, a series designed to explore teachings, ideas, and thoughts on empowering young girls while celebrating difference. I'm Ramita Anand, your host, teacher, and educational mentor, and I'll be chatting with insightful activists, thought leaders, creatives, and all-round brilliant champions for girls. Through these conversations and my work at Elevate RA Mentoring Services, I hope we can join forces to foster meaningful connections in order to alter the narrative around what being different, especially for young girls, signifies. Hello and welcome back. I am thrilled to be introducing you to my next guest, who is often referred to as the Steve Jobs of education. She has designed programs for learning centers in Mongolia, Thailand, Turkey, Japan, Florida, Barcelona, India, and South Korea. A passionate visionary about bringing quality education to children around the world. She is an international curriculum designer and in her own words, a global school hacker. She has helped to redesign and create equitable learning programs for kids in over 20 countries and has been nominated for the Global Teacher Prize, which is like the Nobel Peace Prize for educators, three times. My guest is the founder of her hugely popular initiative, The Evolved Teacher, and of the conscious learning platform, KidU University, and is also the youth education advisor of Mind Valley. Her admirable and incredible achievements don't stop here. She also just happens to be an author of three books, a TED speaker, a two-time TEDx speaker, and with her accomplishments taking her to be featured on notable places such as the NBC Network and Oprah. Her travels around the world for 11 years saw her transforming learning spaces and empowering educators and community leaders throughout many villages and communities. An enthusiast for all things love and literacy, she is known for creating innovative curriculums that have resulted in children as young as five years old writing their own books and even essays about topics ranging from philosophy to art history. She has also impressively designed 60 textbooks that have been used in classrooms around the globe. She has a way of empowering children with the love of writing and published books to help with this too. Inspired by a 2009 statement by the former president, Barack Obama, about the success of South Korea's schools, she decided to pack up her bags and find out why, as you do. Her own innate curiosity led her on a global quest to uncover how kids learn. In May 2018, she revealed her findings to a packed crowd during a TED resident talk in New York passionate about pushing humanity forward by providing access to impactful and transformative education. As a leader in the education sector herself, my guest sees it as her mission to assist other leaders in uniting personal growth with learning practices that motivate kids and teens to excel in life and in school. She explains it is very important for her to assist other leaders in developing connections between personal growth and learning practices. Nicknamed the Celebrity Teacher by her students in South Korea, my guest inspiringly believes that parents, educators, and leaders should guide students in following their curiosities. An absolute visionary and incredible role model for our youth, but also for us educators out there. It is such a joy to be welcoming you, Jamia Drummond Bay, to the Elevate podcast. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you. That was amazing. The, the best <laughs> bio of myself I've ever heard.
0: <laughs> oh, I'm so pleased. Well, it's nice to be recognized for all the work that you're doing, which is incredible. I'm honestly in awe of everything you've achieved. And I don't think I've probably listed everything. There was so much I had to condense it to a short version. Um, how are you?
1: I'm good. I'm good. I'm, it's, it's a very interesting time for educators, but it's also quite. An exciting time to be in the midst of a huge shift right now. So
0: yeah, good. and you're you're speaking to us oh, to my listeners anyway from my neighboring country, which is uh, you're in Malaysia. How is the life and pandemic and the situation you're in? Is everything okay? Are you feeling strong?
1: Yes, I feel quite safe in Malaysia, which is great. Uh, Malaysia did a wonderful job, in my opinion, of locking us down immediately. And, you know, watching the numbers and constantly telling us, OK, it's time to go back inside, which isn't always fun, but it's safe. It's good to know that um, there are people taking precautions.
0: Yeah. And looking after you. Well, that's great to hear. It's We are sort of in a similar situation in Singapore, which is reassuring. But my heart goes out to everyone that's still struggling and in a much worse place than we are. But like so much about you, your journey to where you are today is Absolutely, the most interesting path and things I've ever come across. I'd love to know if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit more about that. I know some of your career starts after your volunteering service with the Peace Corps, but start where you want. Tell me what are the most kind of pivotal moments in your journey that got you where you are in Malaysia today?
1: Ah, that's so tough. It's so tough to know which parts were the the pivotal parts. You know. Um, I think everything, every decision just planted another seed. Um,
0: And you took them all. You you took every opportunity. Maybe. maybe.
1: (laughs) I I think for me, um, joining the Peace Corps and going to Turkmenistan, which was a country that prior to my decision to join the Peace Corps, I'd never even heard of. I didn't know that country existed. Um, And, uh, people around me didn't know it existed either, which was interesting. When I said, I'm going to Turkmenistan, and people would say, Do you mean Turkey? Yeah. <laughs> no, <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> there's another place, you know?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, but for me, I just kept feeling like the my choices for the goals that I w- was going at to as a university student were limited based upon my awareness. And that bothered me so much because I knew that I there was so much that I wasn't aware of, opportunities and so many needs that I would have to go out in and venture upon myself in order to find. And I kept saying that, which confused <laughs> my family when I would say, you know, I feel like I don't know what I don't know and I need to figure it out. And you're like, what?
0: <laughs> oh, my goodness. I love that. I just listened to Adam Grant speak about exactly that, like actually looking into your the area that you don't know is wisdom. If everything else is knowledge, then actually finding out what you don't know is wisdom, which I think is hugely powerful, but you seem to have already lived it at your lovely young age. I, I mean, you're so young and so inspiring. This, I can't wait for for young girls to listen to how you've got where you are. And I, I know I, I quoted the sort of line from President Barack Obama, which is what obviously I think is the opening um, statement in your TED Talk, which if you haven't seen listeners, please go and watch. But for those of us that haven't watched it. I wonder, because what was so great about that is that you listened to something he said and you decided, well, let me ask about this and thought well, that's a statement. Okay, let's go find out why this is the case. You know, what a wonderful way to embrace learning. What was it that you he said, or what was it that you read about and decided? What Was it an inner voice? Was it a calling that you felt? How old were you and what did you do? Why don't you talk about that? <laughs>
1: uh i i think i was uh when i heard the obama uh conversation um it it was 2009 after the peace corps so maybe I was 24 25 maybe and the i just it was a moment of frustration because this was also during the recession so i finished volunteering and i returned home and i was super excited to tell my friends about uh, the level of awareness in um, the the Peace Corps, but also what I my realizations and my epiphanies by living abroad. Um, so many so many things changed me um, based on my perception of education as well. When I went to the Peace Corps, I went in as a community health educator and my I thought I was going to study global health um, as a doctor. But when I was there, I realized that education was healing. People needed to learn, you know, how to communicate, how to read, how to pass exams. And they said, for us, this is life or death. This gives my child a future. This is really what's, you know, noteworthy. And when I was um, leaving the States, that wasn't what I was necessarily taught in university. You know, you have these rankings or your major and the ranking, the majors that make the most money aren't kindergarten teachers, you know, so you're kind of primed as a young person. If you want to be successful, if you want to do well, then you need to go into these categories. And so I thought after leaving the Peace Corps, well, maybe it's not the fact that, uh, there are certain, um, jobs or careers that do well. Maybe it's what we put into them. I was willing to go into the Peace Corps and volunteer for two years and then have eight to 11 years of medical school residency. What if I did that for education? And I said, what if I med schooled education? What if I said, you know what, I want to be an amazing educator. I'm going to put in the same kind of focus and learning how to be an amazing educator, just like I would have a doctor. How could you fail? How could you? You know, and, and that's why I kept telling myself. And so, when Obama, when I heard Obama say that um, American education systems needed to follow South Korea, I just thought, you know, I just I feel like in the education space, there's a lot of talk about what educators need to do and should do, and people are just fi- following it blindly, you know, um, and there there isn't trust. And I said, I wonder. if I wonder if Obama really knows. We had Facebook at that time, but it still wasn't as widely popular. And, you know, and so for me, I, I found that I could go to South Korea as a teacher, which you still can, where they fly you there. Um, they pay for your housing, you know, everything's taken care of. And you, and you teach. And I thought, okay, the contract's a year. So I thought, okay, I have no education experience, (laughs) (laughs) but it's the year sink or swim, you know, either I'll, I'll learn something either way. I'll learn that I'm good at it. I'll, I'll learn that I'm horrible at it, but I'll get to have an insider's track into whether or not our country is just making these statements or there's something, some actual truth there. And once I got there, things shifted even more because I realized that there was a gift that I had by not having an educational background because I wasn't going in with this is what I know. I was going in with what do you need? And so the students taught me how to be a teacher. If they were bored, then that, that wasn't working. You know, if they weren't learning, then I said, okay, I need to go back and figure it out how to do it better. You know, and that, and I, I feel like that, that person centered way of doing things is just what really helps us in every field. I mean, if you think about a doctor, if a doctor comes in and says, you know, there's nothing wrong with you, but you know, there's something wrong with you,
0: right? So the inquiry is so important, and the listening to to each other is important. And which is... and the
1: feedback, which which is something that as adults we lose, we lose that acceptance of feedback and that excitement around feedback. You know, um, which is so necessary.
0: And so I'm really intrigued because you, you being an American, growing up in America. This was like your first experience in Asia, arriving there with your own sense of curiosity, so boldly, clearly. And you you have a quote that you sort of use on your, on your work, which is education will never evolve beyond our mindsets. Can you talk us through this and how you think we can go about achieving it based on what you found while you were out in South Korea? I think you've just touched on it briefly on the fact that you obviously looked at everything from a human perspective, which is a great start. But, you know, you've, just done so much since that point so I wonder what it was that allowed you to make that amazing statement
1: a big part of my growth was in the classroom was also based on my personal growth the importance that it really became for me to learn myself emotionally And the more that I grew, uh, the more that I expanded my awareness, my emotional intelligence, the better educator I was, the more the things that I could pick up on. For instance, when I started really focusing on the different types of intelligence um, and then child psychology and things like that. There was a time when I was this great educator in one school. And then I decided that because this school was a wealthy quote unquote school, I wanted to go to a school and teach children who didn't have as many opportunities as the more affluent school. And the students at the more affluent school's parents said, you know what? Well, we're just gonna follow you. We're gonna unroll our kids and follow you to this other school. And I did expect that because I mean, the more affluent school had nannies and, you know, all these things. And this other school was bare bones, you know, couldn't believe it. But they did, you know, but um, there was a situation when I went into this new school and I had them draw pictures. And I noticed that one of the students, a newer student, her name was Daisy in the less affluent school, drew a picture. And in that picture, it was me. And the students who I'd come with. And then it was her kind of like peering on the other side. And I saw that and I was overwhelmed with emotion because I immediately knew what that what she was telling me. But then I wondered, would I have picked up on this before? How many, how many messages did I miss before when I wasn't in that level of awareness, you know, and really connected at that point? And From then on, it just became really important to me to also continuously work on myself because I would pick up on things, the way their eyes would twitch when they were tired, school's not broken, the mindset of education is broken. And in so many conversations, uh, oftentimes I'm invited to meetings where they're innovative conversations and educators, you know, talk back and forth about how we can innovate, how we can change. There's never the conversation of what we need to do inside. You know I said mean? We're missing something here. You know, your work can outgrow you, who you are. It can't, it, it can't outgrow your own level of awareness and your mindset, you know, your emotional intelligence. You have to work on that. You show up into a classroom completely exhausted, from a negative space, you're short tempered, you're going to miss so many things and so many opportunities. Um, and I know that that can be really difficult, especially in spaces where like now where teachers, we're teachers, where we are overworked and we have so much going on.
0: It's interesting that you say that because that's exactly what I think is why I've started Elevate, to start teaching these skills of emotional intelligence when they're young. Why do we wait till we're adults are, are looking for really top jobs to start asking ourselves about emotional intelligence. And I know now that people say EQ is as important as IQ and we're looking for top level managers, but why are we asking of that of adults when we're not teaching it to our children if they don't have those skills? So I, I think that's a really interesting and point in point because our, our teachers are exhausted. Our teachers are full of so much pressure and we have we have so much to thank them for, but they can be their best versions, I think, if we support them. And so did you find that Barack Obama was correct? Is he right? Was South Korea clearly miles ahead of everybody else?
1: He was mostly right uh, at that time, academically. However, what he missed was that mental health wise, South Korea also had the highest suicide rate in the world, you know, which was a huge issue. So that's one of those things. OK, but what are you leaving out? He <laughs> completely left that part out, which is very important,
0: yeah, so getting the full child and understanding the rounded picture is is something that yeah we still haven't got right in many countries, have we? You know you've worked in um teen schools, you've had all this experience, and designing curriculum seems like such a daunting mammoth task to take on, especially at your young age. I've been in schools, you know, in three different, four different countries, not nearly as many as you. But the idea that I would take on a whole curriculum, I might take on initiatives, but the idea that I might take on a whole new curriculum fills me with just absolute admiration for you. But I also love the fact that you've got this curiosity, this inquisition that leads you to explore, to become more like what Brené Brown talks about in the idea of getting a master's or a doctorate in curiosity to think and discover knowledge rather than give yourself greater mental flexibility, which takes courage. Now that's the courage that I wanted to talk to you about what ideas of getting curriculums redesigned, where, where did you want to start with this? And how did you get the first, if, we, if somebody else listening to this thinks, I want to do what she's doing, where do you start?
1: Start with something that you want to know yourself start with something, I become emotionally invested in every everything I work on because I get excited about it, you know, and I, I really focus. One of the things that I like to tell my teenagers that I that I work with is for them, a lot of the issues right now with school is feeling like they aren't getting much from it from it. It isn't comparing them for the world that they're actually going to live in. You know, and I said, well actually it is but you have to think about what your curriculum is. And I tell them this story about um, when I went to my first Mind Valley event, right? I need to practice talking more about what I'm doing. So I'm going to make a plan to meet a certain number of people and I'm going to have a certain number of conversations about this. And each time I'm going to plan to develop my confidence more in this. And so I'm going to increase and develop and then I'm going to reflect on how I felt. That's the curriculum. It's a process. You know, it's just awareness. And then after you do that, when someone asks, well, how did I, I noticed that you were just so talkative and you met so many people. Oh, well, here's the system. Because now you have a system. This is what you've done. Here's a system. We all have them. But a lot of times we think, oh, well, I'm just good at that. I've, I've just done it. No, but you have a system. Why did you do it? What were you thinking? What, were your, what was your process? What was the outcome? That was your system. Now teach someone else.
0: Yeah, amazing. And what so from that entire little snippet of one exercise, you developed multiple exercises until you developed a whole curriculum.
1: Maybe I want to say middle school. When I was in thirteen, in the sixth grade, I would miss school a lot because my mom has mental illness. And so what I would do was because I love school, I would do my own homework. I would make up homework because I missed so much school. I didn't know what homework they assigned, so I would say, well, this. I think this is what she should assign, you know, and I would just create things. <laughs> and so I would submit it after missing weeks of school and my teachers would give me straight A's. They would say, look, this was, this is an amazing <laughs> plan. And so that's how I started actually developing curriculum myself.
0: <laughs> so you've been hugely motivated to learn and inquire from a very, I mean, clearly it's innate. eight. You've got it in you. This is something you've always had. Uh, It's interesting that you say that. This is a perfect segue because I wanted to ask you what exactly life was like, where you grew up, and what kind of school you went to, and what kind of student you were. But I think you've just gave me a little snippet of it. Would you expand on that? Where in America did you grow up, and what kinds of school were you at?
1: Sure. So I spent some time in elementary school in Maryland, in Baltimore, Maryland, Um, and I was a very active student. I was in Girl Scouts and, you know, all sorts of things, but I wasn't very social, which was interesting. I enjoyed being alone and I have a little sister who's very active, very talkative and natural entertainer, you know? And I, I really, I was always in so much gratitude for her because when people were around, she could entertain them and I could really just enjoy (laughs) my alone time. And, you know, I think that says a lot about my personality because I love school. And, you know, for me, I felt like, especially in middle school and well, in high school more than than middle school, I felt like school was a place where I got to be fully myself.
0: So you like school. You're a natural student. You obviously did well at school. It was something that you felt really comfortable with. Did you ever experience any adverse behaviors or anything um, to do with feet being a girl or any kind of bullying, maybe to do with race at all? Did you have strict boundaries that you had to follow at home? Were your parents quite strict with you? How was all of that part of growing up in America for you?
1: Um, school, was quite, school was quite amazing. Uh, I did deal with uh, more racial issues in university. And that was in North Carolina. In high school, I really, I really loved that environment. I admired my teachers. The teachers weren't diverse, you know, I mean, all of my teachers pretty much looked the same, but home was difficult for me because at that time, my mom, basically I moved in with an aunt because my mom was dealing with her own mental health issues. She has schizophrenia, which I didn't know at the time. I knew, but I didn't know the label for it. And I actually was the person in our family to diagnose it before she was officially diagnosed. And that was because in high school, I took um, an advanced psychology course and we were studying things. And I said, oh, my goodness, this is totally what my mom has, you know. And so I always kind of felt like not like I was necessarily a part of the family, but that there was just an extra chair there. So, hey, you can sit here because there just happens to be extra room. And that doesn't feel good to feel like, you know, you're just the third wheel all the time. But because of that, I think that's why school was so amazing because I had so many friends and I I kind of didn't really care much.
0: That just speaks incredibly to your resilience though, doesn't it? And it's hugely empowering to listen to you speak about something that's Hugely difficult. So, thank you for sharing what must have been quite a challenging time as a young girl to have a mum who wasn't quite well, and as a you know young girl yourself, being the doctor, the advisor, you know, learning all this stuff. It's it takes courage, and so I can see this passion in you. I can hear it in your voice. It's an incredible gift, I think, that you've got, which hopefully will show others that out of every dark situation, you can bring light.
1: Yeah, thank you. You know, what I would love teens to know and and, um, younger people to know through this is that one of the things that really fueled me during that time was I, you know, I'm all about the lessons and learning. And I would say this to myself um, repeatedly when I was alone. I would say, you know, I'm going to have an amazing adulthood. (laughs) I'm going to have an amazing adulthood because when I'm an adult, I'll get to choose the people I have around me. And that excited me, you know, and I would practice with my friends. Well, I already have these people around me who I didn't choose. You know, you get to craft what, you know, you want to have around you. And another thing is when I talk, I, uh, in Valley, I have a course coming out about uh, social connections for teens and then that I teach the connection ladder and at the top of the connection ladder are your earth angels. And I say for some people, their earth angels are family members. Those are the people, you know, who are your support system. For me, my earth angels were always my friends. They were never my family members, you know, and they were people who would kind of confirm how I felt sometimes, but I didn't want to talk about it. You know, for instance, I had a, a job when I was in high school, also being president of all of these different things, but I was working at McDonald's. All like every Friday night, every Saturday, all weekends, you know, full time pretty much. And my friends sometimes would come and they would say, We just want to tell you that no one should ever have to do this, you know. And just hearing someone else confirm that, even while I was trying to be positive, I needed that sometimes. And they, you know, those are still my very best friends today, you know, Um, and they were my earth angels. So, you know, the support, the support is is there even if it may not be the place that you expect it to be or the place that you may have wanted it to be
0: it feels that you are the earth angel for all the students that you teach though that listening to you talk about this has got me so emotional i mean where were you when i was a little girl um it's just it's so sweet to hear and not just sweet i mean it's so remarkable really to have someone speak so eloquently about something like could fill many people with shame. People who would feel embarrassed or don't want to admit that their family home isn't what possibly it could be. But for you to normalize it, for you to bring it out into the open—I don't know if it's part of the curriculum planning or not—but for you to have these messaging, these messages in your actual teachings is, for me, it must be life-changing for the children. If I if I'm feeling this moved by it, it's got to only be positive you know, huge kudos to you for putting this out there. I
1: think it's important, especially for teens. For me, vulnerability is the most important aspect of my lessons and connections with teens. Teens start out with, why should I believe you? And with that, leading with vulnerability, you know, you break that wall and it just becomes such a beautiful, mutual experience in the room.
0: Yeah, totally. It just literally touched on my next point. It beautifully leads into the next (laughs) question, which is, which is that another quote of yours, which I took and because it's absolutely gorgeous, emotionally healthy parents and educators whisper beautiful mantras that become the soundtrack of our children's thoughts. I mean, could there be a better reminder for all of us who are adults? What are your other wellness hacks can you offer us examples of how we can use these types of things in our daily life as teachers as parents as anyone that has interactions with young people
1: yes absolutely Uh, i love i love mantras and affirmations repeating them back and forth they're fun Um, one of my favorite things to do with my younger students and with adults who i work with uh, because when I work with adults, I work with them exactly the way I work with my youngest students, which is so.
0: I know. It's great.
1: <laughs> it's great. It's the same mindset, isn't right, it? It's right.
0: Secret. We've let something out. We right, shouldn't have. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> but one of the things that I have them do is uh, take their water bottles and write what they want to manifest you know, on their water bottles and basically charge their water with that. So it's like a vision board. And so you drink from your water bottle all day. You know, I told them this started a few years ago. One of the things that I like to tell parents is whatever you're learning for your own growth, share it horizontally with your child. Whatever, Because that's the reason why, you know, I go to some of these wellness or health retreats and Whenever we have an emotional session, there are people in their 40s and 50s falling on the floor because it's too much. It's so much trauma that's been packed, you know, for years and years. Share that, you know. So, so tell your child, t- hey, you know, just like I did. You know what? I'm writing mantras on my water bottle. Five-year-old, what's your mantra? Cartwheels? Great. Go for it. But you're planting the seed. Yeah,
0: I'm there. I'm there. I'm literally reaching for my water bottle (laughs) straight after this. I think that's everything all in one, isn't it? It's the vision board. It's the physical affirmation of actually feeling it. And then magic. I am 100% sold on that one. That's gorgeous. I absolutely am going to be trying this with my students and myself. I think this is wonderful. (laughs) Well, moving on to slightly more serious topic. We are recording this interview during Black History Month. And although it will be aired after, the powerful messaging from your passion to educate others on the accurate history of Black people is extremely interesting and commendable. Speak as a person who did not grow up with the same lessons and didn't have Black history taught to me in my schools. So as an ignorant educator myself, I'm finding all of your lessons extremely inspiring. But especially right now, as we are in such a vital time over this last year, with the racial reckoning and what's been happening around the globe. Can you talk us through a little bit about how your desire to educate all of us on the fundamentals and the truth around black history manifested and how you're getting on with that?
1: Well, a big part of that was experiencing the George Floyd death and so many things while being so far away from home and not having the ability to protest or, you know, do some, any of those things and just knowing that whatever I did would have to be done behind a computer.
0: Gosh. So so it was that helplessness of it.
1: Right. It was just, you know, how can I be a part of this, but also use my, my genius, my, my way of doing things, you know, which is to teach something. Uh, And so that's when I started making, posting different things and lessons and, and stuff like that. But because I've traveled so much, one of the things that kept coming up, uh, around my travels during my travels were conversations, uh, that made racism and colorism and things like that seem so far removed from different countries. Like it was an American issue and me being in, you know, spending so much time in Asia specifically, I know, That it's everywhere, and I see it all of the time, you know. And I say, no, actually, you know, I've lived in India for six months. I've seen it, you know. I, in a way that humanizes, you know, each person and each situation and activists and things like that, so that whoever is reading or or watching if it's a video, can compare and mirror that based on what's happening in their country or their own personal experiences.
0: Yeah, I noticed a lot of the messaging on some of your lessons that you are teaching on Black history seem to suggest a lot of adults, even of Black race, were taught things that you've tried to rectify. Is that true?
1: Or not taught at all. Um, In America, the curriculum is very white-centered. You know, it's completely left out, completely edited. And it's been that way for years. And the thing is, me teaching in Korea, a lot of our books were based on American books. And I would get them and I would say, oh, my goodness, I'm not telling my Korean students this, you know, and not even related to black history, but also in a way to have a class full of young, beautiful Korean children idolizing blonde hair and blue eyes as supreme. I'm not doing that because it's harmful. And so that's the main conversation that I try to portray when I'm talking about black history and even um, the anti-Asian racism that's occurring is that when we dismantle these conversations, we help all of our children. Because just like when I was growing up in America, little black girls would wrap their hair with white towels When I was in South Korea and in India, my students would do the same thing. And I knew where it came from, you know? And even Halloween, when everyone wants to be Snow White, you know, and I would say, oh, but what about Kanji and Pachi? What about, you know, your own...
0: Heroes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, and so that is what I'm hoping will also come from this conversation is for everyone to really start highlighting the truth of their culture and empowering their young people to see themselves as smart, beautiful, and amazing. Who in this class has never felt ashamed or of being Black or never wanted to have European features? And I was the only person who raised my hand in the entire, you know, and I was like, what? You know, so <laughs> I think, especially younger, probably, a lot of people do experience that in school. Also, because typically, if you're a woman of color, and you're in these different spaces, academically gifted spaces, or even more affluent spaces, you're the only one. And when you're dating, you're the only one who looks like you still in the dating pool with everyone else that could be, you know, trying for a lot of people.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. I'm so pleased there are people out there doing more and more to Help change that narrative, which is important. Along with teaching kids to challenge the status quo, you know, just challenging them generally and asking them to rethink, which I think you mentioned a little bit earlier, our positioning on things. I find that most kids want to know the answers to things to find out if they were right, whatever the right in their world is, because they're just so afraid of being wrong. Being wrong is accepting. Possibly that you're imperfect, which, as I think both you and I can admit, we want kids to understand. No one and nothing is perfect. No version of any superstar is you know perfection. But that we should always be you know we don't always need to be right, but we should be using education to get it right. And I feel that that's the most intriguing and exciting thing about the work that you're doing. What kind of challenge have you faced?
1: I will. I'll speak about where I am right now, Malaysia. I like to put the teachers and the educator and and the students and the principals together. You know, we have conversations and we do activities. A lot of times the teachers will opt out. um, Although the students are really passionate and, you know, they want to get to know the educators and the principals are very passionate. They take notes. And I think that's because of the teacher's fear of being wrong of being or, or showing too much of themselves. And with that, we create we perpetuate the notion that it's wrong to be wrong and it's not it's right to be wrong you know that's i mean science you 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 have to get get things wrong in order to get things right you know it's part of it and if you normalize failure please fail today fail a million times today you know <laughs> what have you failed at today and i think that should be a part of the conversation for south korea's Quite different because um, in the school systems there is a hierarchy that's based on your age, right, um, and your your level. And so, because of that, even if someone has a brilliant idea, you know, an educator, if they are younger than you, then they aren't allowed to present that idea to you, you know, or or they may do what you say anyway, just because you're older and you're you know you you have a higher position than they do. And in so many spaces of leadership, that really hinders growth and forward movement, because people come in with new ideas, you know, and new ways of doing things. And, and, you know, that is what really helps us to, to innovate.
0: Yeah. And shift things, I think is important. Yeah. Interesting. And I know you've got, I know you're using all platforms, you know, you're doing it within your classrooms, you're creating all sorts of online programs, but you're also, you have a huge social media presence, which I think has been used brilliantly. And you're vocal about imparting your, your knowledge and the methods about teaching these important lessons that we just talked about in terms of being inquisitive and don't being afraid and go out and fail. It's it's important children. Um, But I wonder if you ever get any, do you ever face backlash or, I don't know, I'm going to use words that I, I hear in that I think sometimes, like the teachers, afraid to be afraid, but some people for being, expressing things because they're trolled. There's issues around gaslighting, which are being brought up huge amounts as soon as people rise to certain places. How are you handling it if you are facing anything or how do you address misinformation?
1: the black history posts are a bit different because these are based on research. So, you know, I put sources and things like that or just based on what I know from my culture. But usually when I post education related things, I post what really happened in my classroom. So their experiences. So it's not like I'm telling you, well, this is my opinion It's well, this is what my students said. This is what actually happened. One of the things that I say a lot on my platform is that I'm not an influencer. I'm a teacher. I'm not here to get sponsorship deals, you know, and do ads with so and so. I'm sharing what's actually happening in my classroom. So I think that helps because I always say I don't really care about followers. I never, never, you know, posted this for that.
0: Yeah, you so see, you're probably the truest form of influencing because what you're doing in teaching is obviously influencing other people, but Thank you. not maybe in the, um, in the Insta way, possibly, but amazing. Again, really great for, I think other listeners to hear this and people who are afraid to voice things in fear of what others might think, which is what I was trying to get at. And I feel that you've got a really strong voice and, and I don't feel there's a lot of fear there, which is... Very refreshing way to think about <laughs> social media. What are your views on woke culture? And how do you think we should be teaching that to our youth?
1: Um, I don't think we should teach it. I think we should, you know, let them tell us about it. That's something that's happening more um, in their. Uh, our students are digital citizens. They're growing up digital citizens. I didn't grow up that way. I didn't grow up in the digital world. So they're experiencing things in a way that we never have in a way that we will never be able to understand so instead of us trying to tell them you know what their world is instead we should guide them in navigating that world in a healthy way and learn from them you know love
0: so. it yeah amazing <laughs> so meet them where they are really yeah, yeah.
1: Or, or be their students actually yeah.
0: yeah let them teach you and that's true i find that my students have been some of my best teachers actually You've written a book that I'm intrigued about, The Life of Ideas. It's a story for anyone who's ever doubted whether or not they were good enough, smart enough, or ready to share an idea. The story will motivate you to dive right into putting your ideas out into the world like you have. I'm wondering if it's based on your actual st- truth. Tr- oh, it's not a biography. Um, because ideas always choose the perfect people to release them, which I feel, again, would be you. It's <laughs>
1: all of us. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I love that you are teaching this to children, and this message is, is so powerful. But how do you help teens get believe in this message, who are just consumed by self-doubt, particularly, in maybe in the last year given the situation we've all been in do you have any thoughts
1: you know what's interesting is that the life of ideas i wrote that for teens first and i shared yeah and i it's a it's a team that it's a book that's technically in the you know 4 to 8 year old range but the teens were the first to hear it uh, i read it to them in a story time it was at a, a mind valley event it's like 80 teens oftentimes Uh, With parents with the very best intentions, this message is attempted to, parents attempt to transfer this message to their teams in the wrong way. And that's by highlighting people who are great or who have done great things or giving them books of people who are great, you know? And for my teams, you know, when we have our moments of vulnerability, they say, I feel so much pressure to be great, and I'm just a teenager. I have so much pressure to either be a YouTube star or an entrepreneur or an athlete and a straight A student. Or, you know, I have so much pressure to be this wonderful person, you know, who's achieved so much when I'm still trying to figure it out. You know, and when you have this pressure of constantly feeling like you're great. Then you don't give breath to the ideas that you feel are too small. And it's actually those ideas that the lead to the, right, yeah, yeah. the greatness, you know?
0: Amazing. No, that is amazing. I want to end finally on asking you who your role model is and who is someone you look up to.
1: My role model's name is Marva Collins. Uh, she is not living, so. <laughs> But um, I never got to meet her, but she was a Black educator who was asked to be the Secretary of Education. And when I was working in South Korea and going to different countries, I studied her. I pulled up a movie about her life on YouTube. And I was always inspired by this woman who I felt was just like me, who just said, you know what, this isn't working. I'm going to do it myself. I'm going to figure this out. I'll teach in my house. And she taught them in her home, you know, and refused to take funding from schools because she said, no, if I take your funding, I'll have to do it your way. And that isn't working.
0: It's been wonderful to speak to you, Jamia. It's been wonderful to hear all the initiatives that you've got going on. I think if we had more educators like you, our the future for our children would just continue to look bright. So I can't thank you enough for being such an inspiration and shining your light on so many of us not just the young folks it's been fabulous (laughs) thank you so much for joining us i can't recommend you getting hold of more of jamia's materials if you're a teacher please do look on her website for more information which i will link on the show notes and for anyone else that's looking for things can they email you jamia how can they get in touch with you Sure. yeah send you send her a message and i'm sure (laughs) she'll get back to you (laughs) thanks everyone for joining us. Thank you, Jamia, for being here.
1: Thank you so much. It was amazing.
0: And that's everything from us today. Thank you to all of you for joining in and being part of these very important conversations. I hope you will continue to support our cause by sharing the podcast to raise awareness with others. If you get a moment and could rate and review the podcast, I would also be hugely grateful. I'd like to extend a very big thank you to Ryan Prespitino from the Pine Studios for all the hard work that he does to help me bring this podcast to all of you. Until next time, stay well and speak soon. Bye for now.